Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Every week, it's my goal to share a story of someone's journey through their life and financial vineyard. We take you from their roots to the journey of their vines and the influences in the air that have helped craft their delicious lives. Like wine, life and finances have different palettes that should be celebrated and not judged. We welcome you to this edition of Wine and Dime with Amy Irvine. We have a very special guest in today's show, one that I have been so impatiently waiting to record. It's Dr. Katherine Larson. She is going to be talking about a show that is going to be taking place at CMOG that combines her passion, which is glass, and my passion, which is wine. (laughs) So this is going to be such a dynamic show for both of us to, to see it come together from the standpoint of our two passions. Kate, welcome so much to the show. Thanks, Amy. I'm so pleased to be here. I've also been looking forward to this as like a little highlight on my calendar all month. So thank you. Lovely. Well, before we get going, before we actually get into, because I, I really want people to um, hear your journey. I, I want them to understand where you've come from and how you've gotten to this point of, of, of your career and where you're creating the show. Um, I I have to know, you know, it is Friday that we're recording the show. Is there a special bottle of wine that perhaps you're going to go home to tonight? <laughs> I, you know, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but one of the really enjoyable things for me in working on this exhibition has been um, getting to learn a little bit more about local wines and some of the local wineries. Um, so right now I'm really enjoying some of the Dr. Frank Rosés. Um, it's summer. It's been warm. Having a nice chilled glass of rosé when I get home is is always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so it's just the right season. And there's our, it's the, the non-sweet, the nice dry kind of minerality. And there's just like that little bit of like rosé it's just so pretty and celebratory and it's it's, it's like champagne without the bubbles isn't it yeah. <laughs> yeah that's what i always think of rosé as well actually last saturday so we're recording um on june 18th but last saturday which was june 12th was national rosé day so i took a little journey <laughs> i didn't even know yeah i took a little journey we went to um we went to Vice Winery on Cuca Lake, mm-hmm. then we went to Ravine's Winery, and then we went to another winery at the bottom of Cuca Lake, that, um, the south end of Cuca Lake, that was up on the hill behind, uh, 
uh, Pleasant Valley Inn, mm. um, tiny little winery that's up at the top there. But yeah, we we rosé hopped is what we said. <laughs> so totally with you. It's a great, uh, Brent and I tend to drink it sort of year round because when it gets, starts to get warm, you know, February, March down in Florida, um, we'll start, we'll start in on the, the rosé wine. Uh, and oh, I, yeah. I tend to, I tend to really like the reds, um, more than the whites necessarily, but rosé has both, yeah. you know, it has the lightness of a white, um, but the, flavor of a red. So I'm, I'm right with you. So I'll have to figure out which one I'm having tonight. (laughs) Now that you got me started on that. Choices, choices. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for, for anybody listening, go, um, I even tried a Malbec rosé the other day. I, I happened to come across one that was in, uh, bottles, no, uh, GCP, I guess it was. And I thought, oh, a, a rosé Malbec, that's one that I don't see a lot of. So no matter what your flavor is, you can probably find a rosé that's made out of the grape that you really like. So that's your that's your journey over the next weekend. That's your goal. <laughs> find a rosé. Find a rosé. Well, digging into your story, so skipping over to the, the uh, vineyard that you formed, um, you know, I think the first time I ever met you and your husband, I, I was in complete awe of some of the places you've been and the journeys that you've been on in your education path and the development to your career. And I think it's, um, I didn't even know that you could do some of these things that you've taught me about. So I, I'd really love to take a step back. And even as far as going back to when you were a kid, um, what, what started, I guess, what, what was the earth that started your vineyard, uh, formation? What got you going in the path that you're, you're on right now? So, um, so my current job title is curator of ancient glass, um, at the Corning Museum of Glass. Mm -hmm. And I, so essentially I got to this by way of being an archaeologist, um, which is actually not a typical way to become a museum curator. Um, most of them have more art history backgrounds and I have more kind of a, you know, I'd call it dirt archaeology background. But when I was a kid, I was always really interested in history. I loved reading National Geographic and learning about people from different places and cultures and history and kind of thinking about way, the ways people lived in different places and time periods. Um, and actually when I went to college, I was especially kind of in that, like very like 18 year old way of mm-hmm. investigating, like understanding like your roots and where you come from. And I was raised in a Christian background and really wanted to learn more about kind of the history of the Bible. So I kind mm-hmm. of got into it that way. Um, and the college that I went to, um, McAllister college of Minnesota had an archeological excavation in Israel. So it was a great opportunity for me to, you know, do some international travel. I traveled abroad once previously. So it's a way to kind of get abroad, see some things. And so I joined the, joined the project, went on it and just fell in love with it. It was just, you know, it's out, it was outside, it was in the sun, in the dirt. And I just really, it just really appealed to me and a way of like, really kind of like getting your hands on the past. That was Mm -hmm. really, I really um, enjoyed and just kind of followed it followed along from there, um, went on and long and winding course and many obstacles and over a decade of (laughs) education. I think I realized at one point that I'd spent more time in postgraduate or in, uh, like, uh, college and university education than I had in, you know, 
K through 12. (laughs) (laughs) Like most people like kind of get to like 12th grade and they're like, all right, like anything else is fine. Like, well, just. When when your primary uh, schools uh, less than um, your post uh, primary school, you're, you're thinking, okay, it's, it's, what am I going to do with this? Right. Yeah, I'm in school for a long time. <laughs> I was in school and, for a long time. And it was great. I mean, I loved it. It's like, you know, it's learning, it's research. I mean, it was everything about it was great. But. And based on what you're saying to me, I mean, even thinking about what you do as a, as a job, I mean, really your education just is continuous, right? You're just constantly educating yourself about in your particular situation right now, glass. I mean, that's your, that's your history ancient class, but you're, you're, you're constantly educating yourself about new finds that are out there. Um, as a curator, uh, you know, I did, and I, I guess I just didn't, I assumed I knew what a curator was, but in preparation of our meeting, I took a step back. And I'm like, well, what does a curator actually do? It's a question <laughs> a lot of people have. <laughs> Why don't you yeah. explain to the audience what does that mean when you say you're the when you say you are a curator? Yeah, so I mean, I, the way I look at it is I'm the subject matter expert in a particular area at this institution. So it's kind of my job to um, know about the objects in the collection and to really like understand them better than anybody else. There's certainly, especially at the at CMOG, you know, there's so many people here that know some aspect of glass of glass history. You know, we've got our glass makers who know so much about the way the glass is made. And so I'm kind of really here to talk about the history, talk about the cultures behind them, talk about what they meant in their society. And as part of that, then it's kind of also being a public scholar, being a public kind of intellectual and researcher. Mm -hmm. So I kind of look at my job as being the kind of the nodal point or the between kind of what scholarly research is Mm -hmm. and what a general public kind of knows about a material. Mm-hmm. And we do that, like I do that through talks. I do mm-hmm. docent trainings. I'm teaching a online class right now with the studio um, and exhibitions, of course, right? Like that's what everybody mm-hmm. thinks about museums or like galleries mm-hmm. and exhibitions and labels and, you know, all of that kind of content. Um, I'm not the only one. There's a huge team of other folks who are involved in developing that material. But um, my role is to kind of, be the, be the person who gives the, gives the content. And then we all kind of craft it and shape it. So you're sort of the face of the content. You're the face of the, the, the shows and the, the actual exhibition and, and, and the education. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I do, you know, I also do a lot of, it's a lot of project management. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of, um, logistics. I am, you know, you've known me now for a few years, Amy, so you know Mm -hmm. that I'm, you know, a, a pretty organized person mm-hmm. and you know that come that comes into it as well and mm-hmm. so I do a lot of reading I do a lot of writing I do a lot of a lot of coordinating mystery. yeah a yeah. lot of mystery too right I mean a lot of what you're doing is research and if 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 the museum for example gets a new artifact um, your role is to really do the research on that and tra- trace it back to its origins right yeah. where yeah and I'm actually the person who kind of also tells the museum to acquire like that if we want to mm-hmm. like goes out and find it and say, Hey, this mm-hmm. is really something we should have, mm-hmm. um, in our collection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
What um, a total sidebar from where I was going to go next, but the comment that you just made, what makes a piece ideal for diversifying a collection? It's uh, there's a lot of factors that play into that decision. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where there's, you know, there's a lot of curatorial judgment and every curator kind of has a different gotcha. um you know, decision-making process. But I mean, I would say like kind of the base level, it's things that you might not already have represented. So adding Mm -hmm. just things that you don't already have, better example, you know, there's an aesthetic judgment. Mm. For me in the ancient world, a lot of stuff's broken. So if I can find one that's a little bit less broken, you know, that's a good thing. Um, Yeah, yeah. you know, if it has a good story attached to it. You know, sometimes it's not just about the object. And I think some of the objects that have the best stories are not necessarily the most beautiful or the most pristine. Mm-hmm. Um, but if right. they if they carry some information or a really unique or special history, yeah, then that's what can really make them meaningful. Yeah. And that really can really help people connect to them. So I took I was a I minored in history when I was in college um, and I took an art history class mm-hmm. and being uh, very right-brained. I never really developed a talent all that much for being artistic other than with numbers. And, you know, that's my artistic side, but I appreciated it. Mm. And I was really into that class. Like it really, it was very interesting to me. And the professor that I had, had been to a lot of the places and in a lot of what we learned was from his slides And the way that he would tell the stories, I think just helped me remember a lot of the history behind things because he would tell like where they were, um, the, sometimes even the emotion behind when they saw it or what the room was like when they visited particular pieces of art or, you know, this historical reference. And, and even today when I see some of those pieces of art or see something, I'm like, Oh, wasn't that like the Mesendone, you know, time? Like it's, you know, it's a very, I don't always remember everything from that class, but I, it made me appreciate art differently because history was yes, always interesting to me. But again, I not being very right brained art was never something that sort of flew, uh, flew, I flew under the radar is what I'm saying until I took that history class. So um, I don't think I ever to- told you that. No, um, but Amy, that's a great, it's a great story. And I think here's, here's what I like about it. It's that, you know, what connected you with those, that art was a personal story of yeah. like somebody who had a connection to it. And that I think people often think art or history can be kind of boring or dry because it's all about, and you know, those of us who teach it have been guilty of this. It's all about <laughs> names and dates and like, modernism and art deco mm-hmm. and these kind of like abstract mm-hmm. terms that don't really mean thinking like a lot to people, but when you can connect it to people and connect it to mm-hmm. stories and think about meaning and meaning really, and this is what I think museums can do really well is it's not just meaning in the past, you know, it's not just, well, the Romans used to drink <laughs> out of this goblet, right? It's like, well, why do I care that the Romans drank out of this 2000 years ago. What does it matter to my life? Well, actually, because that goblet is really similar to the goblet that you drink out of 
at your house and why is that and like how like the like how can we kind of learn and build and form those connections not just with you know each other but people around i think it makes us kind of better humans yeah well and have those connections to others around us and to hear their journey i think that was one of the things that most was impressive when i think about some of the um think of our times right now and how artists are allowed to be themselves you know, they, mm-hmm. for the most part, I, I know there's still some struggles in our society, but for the most part, they're allowed to be themselves where many artists in history had to hide who they were as people. You know, they couldn't give their true views. They, they hid them. Mm-hmm. They hid them in the work that they did. And when, when you're learning about it in today's world and you're finding those little nuggets in their pieces of work that were their own individualism and their own beliefs hidden in what was considered acceptable work at the time, you know, it, that's the, that's the cool journey that I always go on. Now, when it comes to your show, that's coming up, which I can't wait. It's by, uh, we're releasing this podcast just before the, um, the show opens on July 4th. Uh, fourth weekend, right? Yep. Yeah. July, Saturday, July 3rd. Yeah. So uh, this podcast is coming out that Wednesday, right before that. So we're super excited about that. Um, and again, bringing my passion of wine and your passion <laughs> of class together. <laughs> like, this couldn't be any better. Um, yeah. ta- talking about the goblet that, you know, the shape of the goblet that's very similar to what we drink out of even in today's world think about how they figured that out all those years ago that the aeration in the shape of the glass actually brought the flavor of the wine out. I mean, come on. Yeah. What's, what's not the journey and the story there, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's glass too. It's, I think the thing, and when, when I first started studying glass, you know, a decade ago and realizing, you know, the term, like even that we use, like the ter- we use the term glass as a material and also glass is like a drinking cup. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that the material is so intricately, intricately connected to that experience of drinking and specifically wine glass. Like mm-hmm. it's a there's something that's just so, um, you know, and it's that transparency of the glass. That you can see the wine. You can appreciate it. There's that it's to that it's tasteless. It's inert. You don't have mm-hmm. to doesn't get in the way of the appreciation of the wine. It helps the mm. I mean, there's so much that brings out really... the flavor of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the show's name is actually called Fire and Vine. That's the actual name of the show. If you're looking for it for for people that are listening, and we'll have a link in the the actual show notes. So if you want to find out some information about it, certainly attend uh, the event. But there's some good material for people to actually go out and learn a little bit about it. And when again, when I was um, when I was doing some research prior to this, I pulled up the links that you had provided to me and. I was looking at the the wine bottle from 1730, the England, um, you know, wine bottle that's, that's on the website yeah. and like liquid wine kind of made it's me still got wine in it. I know. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> from 1730. Yeah. No, so, I, I mean, there's a little bit of a, I don't want to say a bait and switch, but okay. the wine in there is probably 19th century. And the reason, oh, okay. you know, I mean, it's still like, you know, cool. <laughs> uh, probably 200 years old, but uh-huh. we think it, it was an older bottle that was refilled. And the reason we know that is like a totally, I guess, nerdy history reason, but it's that the seal on top of it was mm-hmm. one that did it. Like there's a foil seal on top of that bottle. So this is like a little insight to all your podcast listeners mm-hmm. who come see the show. 
that bottle, yeah, the wine is probably 19th century because the foil seal on top was, uh, wasn't invented until and used until then. But still, you're right. And we actually have another piece that does have, that is sealed and does seem to have um, oh. wine or ale in it um, that dates back almost that far. Wow. So um, when I, what kind of caught my eye, well, when I first looked at it, I thought either the bottles, I, so I didn't read the description initially, but I thought either the bottle has been paint, like half painted or mm. there's like a sludge in there, you know, that it had, it had solidified. Right. Yeah. And then I read the, the um, caption of it and it says liquid wine. I'm like, okay. So that's going to be one of the pieces that I'm going to have to go look at. Yeah. The interesting thing to me, and this is part, I mean, that's, that's the information about it, mm-hmm. but what's the journey? Like, how did that come to be part of this show? That's the piece that I want to know. The curiosity behind, you know, okay. That was, it was actually, it, I think it might've been the second piece that I selected for the show, right? Okay. So in the pro- kind of process of building the exhibition, the um, the idea for this whole thing started about a year ago. Um, and it came from, you know, if you think back to a year ago, we were all kind of in <laughs> lockdown. Yeah, we were, or we were starting, the museum was getting starting to reopen, but we didn't know what it was going to look like. We'd had to postpone some of our other exhibitions through our whole exhibition calendar kind of into disarray. Um, we didn't know travel was locked down. So we and a lot of other museums kind of started looking internally and said, okay, what kind of programming can we develop with our own collections, with our own material, instead of relying on loans from other institutions Mm -hmm. that require a lot of travel? Um, what can we do that, again, thinking about limited travel that might, you know, that would really be appealing and like speak to this region. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third part of that was, uh, we'd just gotten this, uh, great acquisition, um, over at our Raycow library. That's a, um, a little pamphlet, a little booklet from 1609. And it's in Italian, like an archaic form of Italian. So none of us, I mean, I can kind of muddle my, my way through modern Italian, but you know, 17th century Italians, a little bit outside my range <laughs> and that of most people. Um, but what we think it is, is it's describing a glass jar to hold wine that would never break and would never cause wine to spoil, right? So spoilage of wine is a big problem. So we'd just gotten this pamphlet. So we were all kind of thinking glass and wine and wine history. And it just kind of felt like um, an exhibition on glass and wine was mm. um, was the right thing to do. And then that wine bottle that, with the liquid mm. wine in it from 1730 you were like, okay, well, what objects would we have that support? It was like, well, we've got this bottle that was wine. <laughs> like, of course we have to include that. So it was like, it was actually the, yeah, the second object I think selected for the show. So I love that you pulled it out. <laughs> well, you know, and how did you, how did it come to be at the glass museum? Like how did that, how, what was the journey there? Because obviously it came over, I'm guessing it, it says England, England. So I'm assuming that it came over on a boat from England. How did it end up in little corny New York? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that one, um, you know, we, the museum acquires broadly and from all kinds of, I mean, we have things yeah. from all over the world and it's something I think that's also really fun about this exhibition that, you know, we have, 
wine glasses from Japan and from Argentina mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all other places. So I think that one came to us um, probably in the 60s or the 70s from somebody who said, you know, this is a kind of object that should be in the Corning Museum of Glass. Um, and we finally get to pull it out and yeah. actually and actually show it off as something that's been sitting in archives for some period of time, um, protected in in, a, in an environment that wouldn't allow it to get forgotten. Yeah. I guess is what you want to say. Yeah. 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 So so you've been working on this for about a year now. Is there a favorite piece that you have that you know if people are going to go, they should definitely make sure that they see? Oh, goodness. I love this. It's probably my favorite question. I've got three favorite. Can I, can I tell you three favorite pieces? You can I'll tell be- me as many as you want. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the, and, um, one of the great things about working on this exhibition has been the opportunity to really connect with, um, wine folks in the region. Um, and, I've learned so much. In fact, I have been getting teased that I'm going to go have a second career in the wine industry. <laughs> because, I'll be right by your side. <laughs> yeah. I've learned, it's been so um, interesting to learn about the perspective of winemaking and mm-hmm. really how glasses are really critical part of that and learn more about the wine history in this area. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been, I think I would, I would consider myself a pretty typical local resident. I'd done some wine trails. I'd been to the winery, you know, I buy local wines, you know, when I can or when I'm interested or to take the family at holidays, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, but I didn't really know much about the history of it. And it goes back to the mid 19th century. It's mm-hmm. really, really old and learning about the history of wines in the region and that they couldn't grow the European styles of grape and mm-hmm. had all the, and then that revolution that happened that, uh, Dr. Frank and Goldseal and mm-hmm. others did in the 1950s and like how they were really figured out how to grow European style grapes, which are being grown in Napa in these colder weather climates. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it was just super rich anyway. That's all a little uh, bit roundabout. No, <laughs> no, question, I, but. I, I think, no, I mean, building on that just a little bit, um, you know, that uh, when people from California hear about New York wine, they, yeah. they kind of like, oh, it's New York wine. I'm like, you'd have never had a Lemberger, like a New York Lemberger, if you've, or that you can call it either Lemberger, you can call it Blaufrankisch, right? That one great Blaufrankisch is Austrian, Lemberger is German. But, you don't see that out in California. You know, mm-hmm. that is a grape that needs a cooler climate. It yeah. needs a slightly shorter growing season. And that hasn't been in this area for all that long. Um, mm-hmm. Not in comparison to the, you know, the, like you said, the mid 19th century. It, it's it's a much um, newer bridal that they're actually doing extremely well in this area. Um, so, so thinking about that development and, and then adding to it, as you mentioned, the ambiance that a glass can bring, mm-hmm. to whether it's a rosé, whether it's a, any kind of white wine or a red wine, I, I have, um, they, they were hand blown glasses. They're the stemless mm-hmm. ones, mm-hmm. heavy as all get out, but they've got a funky design sort of, you know, um, blown within them. So when you look at the glass and it, it's, 
by nature of just looking at the glass, I can take my stress level like an octave down, hmm. right? It's just pretty. Yeah. And then you go ahead and you fill it full of your favorite wine or even a decent wine. And it's like heaven in a glass. <laughs> yeah. But it's that combination of um, the, it's a combination of what, the ambiance that that glass adds to the the wine, right? And so, in your research, you probably did some um, some studies around why the different shapes with the different types of wine, why why we have different shaped wine glasses with the types of wine that we drink, yeah, uh, and how that yeah came yeah it's and it's much more recent than you than most people would think. Um, it's really kind of a mid twentieth century consumer phenomenon. Um, that was as, you know, kind of think of like standard 1950s June Cleaver kind of mm-hmm. madman <laughs> world, right? <laughs> Where you're building, like it's kind of you're building this ambiance and there's like kind of a way of serving. And mm-hmm. um, so the the different styles of wine glasses really came out of that moment. And even before red and white wine glasses were a little bit differentiated mm-hmm. before that, but um, not overly, um, but goblets have been around for a long time, but it just kind of, you'd have a water goblet and you might have a cordial glass and you might have a champagne flute, but a wine glass was kind of a wine glass until this kind of 1950s, 1960s. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually came out of the Riedel factory, um, really started to pioneer some of this research in, um, you know, how those shape of the wine glass may or may not determine the way you taste it. The flavor of it. The flavor. The, the way aromas. Yeah. Yeah, aromas. yeah. 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 What was your favorite? Um, I mean, I know you said kind of going around to the different area, like local area and really getting to, to have some of the conversations, not being originally from this area. Did you feel like that really integrated you a bit more, brought you closer to the history of it? Yeah. Yeah. I really feel much like I've been able to feel, help me feel more connected to this area than I had been, which was really, has been really fun. And I'm the downside, you know, I'm looking forward to now that we're kind of coming out of COVID to being able to explore a a little bit more and kind of take advantage and um, yeah, have like a deeper appreciation, I think for, for the spaces. We certainly have tons of wineries in the area. So there's no no shortage. (laughs) The, uh, um, the show opens on the third. Uh, will you actually be there that weekend to, to be walking around and kind of uh, participating in the event? Or uh, I will probably be taking a break because we're in the middle of it. <laughs> the, yeah. the few weeks before the show opens are always a, like really chaotic, all the last minute changes and adjustments mm-hmm. and everything. So actually, once the show opens is when I go, Oh, and <laughs> get to relax a little bit, but there's going to, we're going to have a lot of, um, a lot of programming coming out, um, you know, kind of follow, you can follow along on the Corning museum, social media and website. Um, there'll be social media announcements. Um, we're going to be doing some events later this year. So, um, so kind of stay, so stay tuned. tuned. Yeah. 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 And it'll tuned. be open. It'll be open through the end of 2022. So We've got some oh, got good a year and a half. Yeah, year and a half to come see okay. it. So great. So people can go out to the Corning um, 
Glassup Museum website, CMAG website, to learn more about it. Get some tickets if they want to attend. Are there any restrictions at this point in time that you're familiar with if if people are up up and visiting? No, we just lift. I mean, as of as of today, you know, never change <laughs> <laughs> quickly. Right. But as of as of this week, with New York State releasing the restrictions, um, we are now um, no longer requiring advance reservations and uh, masks. Um, uh, we request unvaccinated folks wear masks, but um, vaccinated people can go mask free now. Is the uh, in the museum itself are things uh, open like the the restaurant and you know yep, cafe bar and stuff like that? Gift, great gift shop, um, nice restaurant. I think we've got some local wines even at, oh, at in our go. in our cafe. <laughs> we've got great hot glass shows. You know, if you're not familiar with the museum. Uh, you know, make some time for that um, and even make your own glass opportunities that are also fully operational and staffed up right now. So you can like make, make it. And own. actually, we're going to have a, in connection with Fire and Vine, it's a make your own glass grape ornament. So you can blow your own glass, a uh, little cluster wine of glass? grape. Yeah. Uh, you can decorate a wine glass. I think you can decorate your own wine glass. Is that the, the um, okay? Mm-hmm. So the uh, the mold blown uh, grape ornament is that the yeah. one that you're talking about that's on the yeah. website? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they've updated the website exactly with everything they're doing for fire and mm-hmm. vine yet, but we'll, it will be soon. So we can't make our own wine glass, but we can we can decorate our own wine glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the wine glass is pretty tricky to make, actually. So it takes a pretty experienced glass blower to make a wine goblet. Well, I'm sure the gift store has that kind of thing to purchase. And if they don't, then Victrix, I can't even say it, Victrix does. So, they um, do. Actually, on, I just remembered on, let me check the date, um, July 15th, we will be doing a live stream demo. Um, and I'll be on that uh, program as well, uh, July 15th at 5.30 p.m. on our Facebook and YouTube channels. Okay. Uh, Chris, Chris Rochelle, one of our expert glass blowers, mm-hmm. is going to be making making some glass goblets through history. So demonstrating some to, of the different goblet styles. Tune into that one. June 15th at 530, you said, right? Yeah. We'll make sure that we yeah. put the notes in there um, for that as well. So if people are interested, go out to the Visit CMOG. I think it's visitcmog.org. Is that right? Um, website. And they can mm-hmm. learn more about... Uh, all of the events that are taking place, learn more about your show. Certainly they can find you on LinkedIn if there's particular questions that they have about uh, you and, and, and maybe even about the history of uh, glass, certainly. <laughs> um, as you know, we love to end the show and we so appreciate your time. As you mentioned, this is one of your, this is like down to the wire time. So taking some time out of your schedule to chat with us, I so appreciate it. And getting to know, it's like anxiety in a good way, you know, like yeah. I'm excited to be able to to go and and see what um, what is in the show. And now that I, you know, now that I know I can also stop at the cafe and grab a glass of wine, like it's perfect, but, mm-hmm. um, we always love to end the show with kind of a final question. We call it the, the nourish your roots section of the show. We, it's the dime part of wine and dime, right? Um, if there was one piece of advice that you wish you had known earlier, or that you're really glad that you know now, what would, what would that be that you could share with the listeners? 
I think, you know, I was talking about how I was in school for so, so very long, really into my kind of early to mid thirties. And I wish that even when I was kind of living on scraps as a graduate student, that I just put like 10 or $20 into a retirement savings account. And it's what they always tell you when you're in your twenties, just do the, just do a little bit of retirement savings. Cause you won't, but even in the, I've been a, amazed even in, since I started saving for retirement after I got my job and was no longer a student, like how it's so satisfying to kind of watch that investment grow and to know that it's there for you when you need it. And mm -hmm. I think if I could go back to my 24 year old self, I'd say, just put 20, <laughs> just put $20 a month in, but it's hard, you know, like, and you don't have the kind of like automatic discount and you don't mm -hmm. have the kind of investment exposure. Um, to even like start mm -hmm. know how to set those things up, it's it's hard yeah. to do. That's so. why, yeah, that's why Acorn I think is one of those favored um, in investment savings tools because they'll round up every purchase that you make, and yeah. so pennies make a difference, you know. By by take if if your bill comes to twenty dollars and fifteen cents, they're going to put that eighty five cents in. Well, over the course of a week, it does add up to ten dollars. So, and you don't feel it as much, right? It's not, mm -hmm. it's not, you don't feel the cash flow pinch as much. And as much as they are kind of expensive in nature, we still like people to start to use them for that particular reason. So, um, thank you for sharing that, Kate. That, that's a great, you know, all I can say is I agree on your. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely agree with your with your recommendation and we we wish you the best of luck with the show. I'm sure it's going to be a smash especially for our region and for anybody that is thinking about traveling this summer. We hope that you make it up to the beautiful area of Finger Lakes and that you make it into to uh, the Corning Museum of Glass to see the show, to taste some of our wonderful local wineries. Right next door to our office on Market Street is a wonderful new um, restaurant slash tasting bar, really, that will give you such opportunity to explore the wine of our region all under one roof. Um, so thrilled to have them them next to us and to have them offering what they are. Market Street is a wonderful area to explore, but they really historically have not had a lot of the local wine. So I'm more than pumped to have somebody right next door to me that they It's an amazing all. place. Yeah, that uh, Finger Lakes Provisions and Exchange. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being on the show. We know you're busy, so we'll let you go, but we look forward to, to hearing more. Keep us posted on how, how the show is going or if there's anything you can share that might be coming up that would be exciting for people um, to maybe even time their visit to the area. I will. Thanks, Amy. This has been really fun. And that will about do it for today's episode of Wine and Dime. You can contact Amy through the website, www.rootedpg.com or amy at rootedpg.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rootedpg for the latest news. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear about, feel free to let us know. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.